Hey everyone, it's Mark here in Chicago, bringing you a new episode of Media Riot. In this episode, we'll see who's the last one standing again in The Hunger Games Catching Fire. In music, we watch Eminem go berserk on his new album, The Marshall Mathers LP 2. Lady Gaga finally mashes up Art and Pop on her new album, Art Pop. And can Scott Stapp of Cree take us higher on his solo album, Proof of Life? We'll see. Now let's get started. Back for more games are Katniss and Peeta. The Hunger Games Catching Fire is a sequel to The Hunger Games. Set in a dystopian future, North America is now Pan-M, separated into 12 dirt-poor districts that are kept under strict rule by the wealthy elite of those who live in the capital. Katniss and Peeta won the 74th Hunger Games, the games are 12 males and 12 females ranging in age from 12 to 18, fighting to the death. The winner lives in luxury in the capital. But in Catching Fire, we learn that even if you win the Hunger Games, you lose. You can't just go home and live your days out in peace. Katniss and Peta are now cogs in the capital's perpetual population-suppressing machine. They travel to districts to give pre-written speeches, wave and smile for the camera, and live their lives in the spotlight. While traveling, Katniss and Peeta see how the rest of Pan Am lives, and it's just as brutal as their lives were pre-games. Katniss, because of her standing up to the ruling elite uh, when she can, has become a source of inspiration for the quietly brewing underground revolutionaries who want to overthrow the government. To quell the revolution, before it builds too much momentum, President Snow and his minions use a special rule used only during games held every 25 years, which allows them to actually change the rules. They've decided to have the past winners of the Hunger Games go at it again in the 75th annual Hunger Games. And surprise, surprise, Katniss and Peter are chosen. Katniss gets out her bow and arrows and heads out again. Now, 
Yes, it's still a fight to the death, but there's something different about these Hunger Games. Hmm. If you read the book, you know how these games are different. If you haven't seen the movie, I don't want to spoil anything. That being said, I'm giving The Hunger Games Catching Fire three stars. Catching Fire is Hollywood money at the top of its games. There's obviously no skimping seen anywhere on screen, and all the actors give their all. Jennifer Lawrence's Katniss shows she can carry a blockbuster film, unlike, say, Taylor Kitsch in the movie Battleship. The overall score for Catching Fire is 89% of Rotten Tomatoes. That's pretty impressive. And even though I'm giving Catching Fire three stars, if I didn't see it at the theaters, or even at all, I don't feel like I would have missed much. Now, there's nothing wrong with the acting or the directing. Director Francis Lawrence steps in for Hunger Games 1, director Gary Ross, and doesn't miss a beat. It's just that I don't think I'm the target audience. I'm amazed at how much money Catching Fire has made. I can't believe that many people want to see it. And it has nothing to do with, like, Jennifer Lawrence in the lead. One of my uh, all-time favorite movies is Aliens with Sigourney Weaver, and she just goes around kicking ass. But from the start, I've always found the base story of The Hunger Games a little dark for what's considered a young teen novel, even a well-written one. A forced fight to the death between 24, 12- to 18-year-olds is kind of a heady subject. And the subject is handled with taste, but this... This is supposed to take the place of Harry Potter movies, which I wasn't a fan of either, but I don't remember Harry and Ron trying to kill each other to graduate from Hogwarts. I haven't read the Hunger Games novels, and yes, things are changed when transferring from book to screen, but I think if I even read the books, I'd still walk out with indifference. Is the Hunger Games better than, say, Battleship? Yeah, it is. Is it at a Star Wars level? No, not really. So, if you're a fan of the books, see Catching Fire. If you like the first movie, see it. If you want to see Grand Hollywood Entertainment on a Saturday night, yeah, sure, see it. But if you walk out with without feeling 100% exhilarated, don't worry, I didn't feel that either. Now, quickly here, I do want to point out three amazing things from Catching Fire. One, the ability to make Lenny Kravitz likable. His public persona to me has been pretentious douchebag from day one. <laughs> Two, the chemistry between Jennifer Lawrence and Liam Hemsworth, that is the true catching fire of this film. They need to be cast in something else immediately. And number three is the bitchin' transcontinental rail system. Seriously, does America really have to go through an apocalyptic event to get that fast of a rail system that never seems to break down? That is the most sci-fi part of The Hunger Games. Not the post-apocalyptic lifestyle, it's the awesome rail system. Back with his 8th studio album, Eminem does a sequel with The Marshall Mathers LP 2. Let's take a listen to a track. Now the six 
It's about to kick off, this party looks whack Let's take it back to straight hip-hop and start it from scratch I'm about to bloody this track up, everybody get back That's why my pin needs a pad, cause my rhyme's on a red tag It's like I did with addiction, I'm about to bleed it Like a magician, critics, I turn to bleed it Got them still on the fence, whether to bleed it But quick to get impaled when I tell them bleed it I'm sick, I'm looking pale, oh that's my bleed About to go ahead, yeah bitch, shout out to bleed Let's bring it back to that vintage slim That I'm dressed, ain't it? Khakis pressed, Nike shoes, crispy and fresh lace. So I guess it ain't that at the shave of cologne that made him just faint. Plus, I showed up with a coat, freshened in wet paint. So if love is a chess game, checkmate. But girl, your body's banging, jump me in, bang, bang, bang. Yes, sir, we bob. I was thinking the same thing. So come get on this kid's rock, bob with the bob, bang, bang. Pow, 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 chicka, pow, chicka, wow, wow. Catch a cab, blowing up a pound, pow, 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 And we're back. Eminem has cemented his place not only in rap, but mainstream music history as one of the best of all time rappers and lyricists. Following his hit single, Lose Yourself, I didn't think he had anything else more to prove. The only thing he had to do was keep the quality up, and with a few minor bumps in the road, he's pretty much done that. Now why do a sequel? In an interview in Rolling Stone, the story goes, A sequel to the Marshall Mathers LP came about after Eminem recorded a handful of songs in the early stages of the creation of the album that reminded him and his friends, namely manager Paul Rosenberg, of Eminem's early recordings. The more I listened to it, the more it made sense to call it that, said Eminem. Eminem also wanted to experiment with retro vintage sounds such as beat breaks and scratches, and he felt that producer Rick Rubin could help him take that Uh, to another level and he does that on this album I mean I don't know how retro I would call this but there is a fair amount of record scratching and sampling that would make the Beastie Boys circa Paul's Boutique proud there are 16 songs on this album and 18 producers listed including Eminem and well this is one of the technically and sonically sounding best sounding albums of the year I don't really see the connection to the uh, Marshall Mathers LP1 Eminem could have called this album whatever he wanted to, and it still would have been a great record. Now, I'm giving this album three stars. Overall, it's well-produced, but the first six songs on the album don't really work right. It's just the way he uh, raps them. Now, Eminem has always been controversial for his violent lyrics. He likes to hit and yell, and a lot of that yelling is at his mom and his wife and, well... The press, women in general, homies he's not down with. Dude's got anger issues. With Eminem, no matter if he calls himself Eminem, Slim Shady, or his given name Marshall Mathers, I've always seen Eminem's material coming from the point of view of a low-educated white trash who can't express himself beyond lashing out. And I think a, a majority of people beyond his core fans connect with him because, well... 
We all have some sort of anger inside of us, even if we don't want to acknowledge it. And since Eminem's presentation and lyrics are superb, he tugs at that anger inside of all of us. You know, that anger that we sometimes want to let lash out from time to time. Now, mind you, with Eminem's best material, say, the song Lose Yourself, that anger is at himself to push himself harder. We can all relate to that. His weakest material is anger directed at those who don't deserve his rage and can't defend themselves. I'm sure your mom wasn't that bad, M. But Eminem isn't only about anger. If you look at Eminem's discography as a whole, he's been all over the emotional map. He's angry, he's regretful, he loves his daughter, he's scared, he's confused, and in interviews he seems calm and well-spoken. But it takes a while on Marshall Mathers' LP2 to get to those other emotions. The first six songs on this album are some of the angriest songs I've heard all year. Now, yes, I just went through defending Eminem's anger, but in these first six songs... I'm not sure why he's so angry as he raps them. I mean, things will always bother him. Fame and the lifestyle that has to to come with it. The press. His mother, still. His wife. Oddly, it seems random women, which I think are more gold diggers. He's not down with those girls at all. Now, this sounds odd saying it, but he seems doubly pissed off during those songs. Now, mind you, he's not faking it like, I'm Eminem. Alright, better age. As I listened to the songs, I just felt pure anger. And the thing is, when you look at the lyrics, there doesn't seem to be a good reason to be that angry. It's kind of like freaking out at the barista if they get your order wrong. Thankfully, the later songs on the album, like Berserk and The Monster, have that focus intensity that works best for him. What might seem like anger is just focused intensity to get things done. Oh, oh, but, but, the song Headlights will be one of the worst songs Eminem has ever done. And it's not totally his fault, but why did he bring on Nate Roos of the band Fun for that song? Fun is the worst band of the new millennium. I am not kidding. I would rather sit through 10 consecutive Backstreet Boys concerts than hear one song by Fun or Nate Roos. He has one of the worst voices on the radio, and his I'm a hipster, not trying to be a hipster lyrics irk me. Nate singing Eminem's lyrics brings Eminem's immense talent as a lyricist down to a level it never should be at. So, minus that bump in the album and the odd anger in the first six songs, it's great to see Eminem still turning out great material. We're looking at a top ten album of the year here. I'm not afraid. I'm yeah. Not afraid to take the it's been a ride. Everybody. I guess I had to go to that place to get to this one. Now, some of you might still be in that place. Trying to get out. Just follow me. I'll get you. You can try and read my lyrics off of this paper before I lay them. But you won't take the sting out these words before I say them. Cause ain't no way I'ma let you stop me from causing man. When I say I'ma do something, I do it. I don't give a damn what you think. I'm doing this for me. So fuck the world, feed it beans. It's gassed up. Everything's stopping me. I'ma be what I set out to be without a title. Are you ready, little monsters? Mother Monster Lady Gaga returns with her third full album, Art Pop. Let's take a listen to a track. Just 
Lady Gaga describes art pop as a celebration and a poetic musical journey. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, Lady Gaga writes about two things on this album. Wait, three-ish. Fucking and fashion style. And fucking while fashionly stylish or stylish fucking, however you, however you may want it. The first song is about Lady Gaga making an entrance. Actually, wait. <laughs> when talking about Gaga, you need to make everything sound Oprah-ish. Lady Gaga makes an entrance! Within the first few lyrics, the old Lady Gaga is gone, and we have a new Lady Gaga, which is more or less the same Lady Gaga. <laughs> I killed my former and left her in the trunk on Highway 10. Put the knife under the hood. If you see it, send it straight to Hollywood. The song goes on from there about how people want to see Gaga and what she'll do. Which, admit it. You say you can't stand her because she's a fame whore, but you always look anyways because, hey, she does keep it interesting. I mean, a meat dress? Eh. Pretty much from there on out, the songs in our pop are about fucking or stylish art. Like the song Venus, it was inspired by Botticelli's Birth of Venus painting, so, you know, sex. Uh, the next song, Guy, opens with Greetings from Eros, God of Sexual Desire, Son of Aphrodite, Lay back and feast as this audio guides you through new and exciting positions. Hmm. Fucking. The next song is Sex X X Dreams. If I need to explain this song to you, go back under that rock. (laughs) There's also a song called Passion! Exclamation point. Go deeper under that rock if you need that one explained too. (laughs) There are two songs in this album about marijuana. Mary Jane Holland, and Dope. Lady Gaga has admitted in interviews she had an addiction to smoking marijuana, smoking up to 15 to 20 marijuana cigarettes a day. Dope kind of deals with her addiction to weed, and Mary Jane Holland sounds like, well, when she had a good time smoking weed. The second to last song is rather random. It's called Gypsy, and it's more or less about the gypsy lifestyle she has uh, going from town to town. I guess this this can be considered her sad, slow song. The song Applause that closes out this album is the first single released from Art Pop, and it's a nice companion piece to the opening song, Aura. Gaga sings about how she loves the way people, well, applaud her and how she's addicted to it. 
She knows she's Lady Gaga and lifts word, even if she finds it overwhelming at times and needs weed to cope. <laughs> now, since the start, Lady Gaga has been called a Madonna knockoff. Well, at first, yes, she took cues from Maddie, but as Gaga has moved along, she's actually now moving away from Maddie and moving more towards another 80s star, Bonnie Taylor. You know, Total Eclipse of the Heart, I Need a Hero. That, you know, that song from Footloose where Kevin Bacon and the other guy play chicken with farm tractors? Yeah, that one. To me, this style change kind of sucks. <laughs> Pretty much since uh, her single Born This Way, Gaga has been sliding more and more into forgettable 80s pop sounds. I don't like it. The songs are kind of lame, the lyrics a little lazy. She must know in the back of her mind that people are going to compare her to Madonna. So she just wants to move away from that, but moving towards Bonnie Taylor is a bad direction. But, luckily, it's 2013, and the hottest of the hot producers are on this album. Zed, David Guetta, Rick Rubin, and Will I Am keep Gaga's 80s bad romance from becoming a bad album. These guys give Art Pop some of the best radio dance pop music of the year. I'm giving Art Pop two and three, four stars. Lady Gaga, the persona, is amazing, is amazing to watch. The producers give exciting, danceable beats, but Lady Gaga, the musician, is the weakest part of this album. Let's hope Gaga will get tired of her 80s musical obsession and change it as quickly as she does her fashion. Scott Stapp, lead singer of the quote-unquote band Creed, releases his second... Wait, wait, is that right? Second solo album? When the hell was the first one released? Okay, while we check on this, let's listen, let's listen to a single from Stapp's second album, Proof of Life. Really? Really? Two solo albums? Do we really need that? That's weird. I don't know why my computer played Naked Raygun instead of Step. Let me try this again. Hmm. Uh, okay. Come. Come on. Come on. Come on. Play the song.
So, yeah, this really is Scott Stapp's second solo album. His first solo album was released in 2005 and is titled The Great Divide. Proof of Life is coinciding with the release of Stapp's memoir, Sinner's Creed. <laughs> Creed. Stapp is publicly known for having substance abuse issues, depression, and domestic abuse issues. Scott is quoted as saying, That book was incredibly cathartic and enabled me to release a lifetime of pent-up feelings about my past. Sinner's Creed. <laughs> Creed paved the way for proof of life, which in musical terms is another reaffirmation of my personal history. There were years when I thought it had all been a waste. I looked at, I looked around at the damage I had done and thought, man, I've made a mess. But now I see that I'm able to turn that mess into a message. That message takes the form of songs that can comprise the spine of my story. Now, when musicians like Stamp go solo, is it really necessary that they do? I mean, he's the lead singer-songwriter of a band. What does Scott Stapp have to say that he can't say being the lead songwriter for Creed? I mean, when Peter Gabriel went solo, his musical interest went one day, one, one way, and the rest of the bands went another. With Scott Stapp's solo album, you're more or less getting some Creed-esque rocking. Now, okay, let me, let me say this first. Don't buy this album. I mean, come on, it's Scott Stapp of Creed. And second, it's actually not terrible. I'm giving proof of proof of life two stars. Don't, don't buy it, mind you. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. But it's well done. The thing that amazed me the most was how fast the album moves. Not like punk rock fast, but by the time I had seriously started to look at the lyrics, I was already on song three. No song goes over five minutes, and most clock in at three and a half minutes. And I'll give Stapp this. He has a rich voice, very full, and just the right amount of gravel. For radio rock, it's very impressive. And the guitar licks are top-of-the-heap generic rock. You know, this is the best bar band you'll, you'll ever hear. I would never see him live on purpose, but I think it would probably be on par with, say, like Stone Temple Pilots, who I did see live once. And yeah, they rocked, but when they finished, I wanted a real band to come on after them and really rock. As for the songs, well... I think I know why Stop went solo with these. 
Within the band Creed, they've had very Christian-leading songs, like the song Higher, and the band members consider themselves Christians, but they've always said they've never considered themselves a quote-unquote Christian band, or a good band either. <laughs> okay, all right, I made up that last part. <laughs> On Proof of Life, Stapp lets his Christian flag fly. I mean, he has a song called Jesus Was a Rockstar. There is no irony or symbolism in that song. <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong with Christianity in modern mainstream music. Johnny Cash's gospel songs are amazing. But you have to make sure you don't sound silly. In Christianizing your songs, there's a fine line between heartfelt soul-searching and cheesy crap. This album leans towards the latter. Now, Stapp is not trying to convert anyone on this album. He's just dealing with his personal struggles. And one of them has been his struggle with being a Christian and a modern arena rock star. Most of these songs deal with loss of self and God and finding oneself and God in a balanced, contented place. Now, that sounds like a good idea for an album. But <laughs> the main problem is Scott Stapp is not talented enough to write <laughs> lyrics for an album like that. His lyrics fall to the maudlin and slightly corny. Actually, the lyrics he writes for Creed are better. Looking back, My Own Prison is lyrically a better song. So, nice try, nice try Scott. Two stars. Nobody buy this album. Remember, don't, don't buy it. Don't buy it. <laughs> just, alright, so, just wait for an official Creed album. And if you are, may God have mercy on your soul. Well, a man walked down by Galilee, so the holy book does say. And a great multitude was gathered there without a thing to eat for days. Up stepped a little boy with a basket. Please take this, Lord, he said. And with just five loaves and two little fishes, five thousand had fish and bread. Who was it, everybody? Who was it, everybody? Who was it, everybody? It was Jesus Christ, our Lord. Actor Paul Walker suddenly and sadly died on November 30th at the age of 40, a passenger in a car accident that killed both him and the driver. Paul Walker's wholesome all-American looks worked well for him, getting him roles in hit movies like Bar City Blues, Pleasantville, and Cheese All That. The movie, or movies, he would most be remembered for is the Fast and Furious series. He starred in five of the six released films. The seventh is still in production. The Fast and Furious films are okay. I find them silly and not that entertaining, but it found an audience, and all six films have earned the series over $2 billion worldwide. Now I actually want to look at another Paul Walker film, Joyride. A road, a road thriller starring Walker, Steve Zahn, and Lily Sobieski as a trio who are terrorized by an unseen truck driver as they drive cross-country. One of the writers of the film was in early in his career, J.J. Abrams, of Lost in Star Trek fame. The director was John Dahl, famous for directing the film that brought poker back to the mainstream, Rounders. Dahl was a perfect director for Joyride. He made his name as a thriller director, and Joyride is full of thrills. Abrams stated that Joyride is influenced by Steven Spielberg's 1971 breakout movie, Duel, about a man terrorized by a semi-truck as he drives cross-country. Joyride wasn't a remake, they just had the same idea, and after about 30 years, you can give a fresh take on thrillers like these. Now actually, I saw a test screening of Joyride, and what I saw, I thoroughly enjoyed. A solid three-star entertainment. I've watched it multiple times since then. 
Joyride had Dahl at the top of his craft before his career floundered. He could get tension out of almost any situation. And Walker and the rest of the cast gave believable, likable performances, and the villain, Rusty Nail, scared the shit out of you with only his voice. I would recommend the test screening version to anyone. Now, why do I say test screening version? Well, Joyride is a perfect example of studio interference. Joyride is a little over 90 minutes, and, well, for some reason, the studio did not like the last 30 minutes of the film, so they, they reshot the last third of the movie. Everyone had to come back and reshoot an entirely new third act. Steve Zahn, who had changed his hairstyle for another movie, had to wear an obvious wig for the reshoots. Now, was his third act better? Not really. Dahl was in his prime, so what he was given, he made it work. But the <laughs> the ending went the ending went from tense believable to oversized and now unbelievable. <laughs> you hear about movies reshooting all the time, going back to retake one shot or, you know, a scene, but the entire third act? Actually, the studio was so indecisive, there are four different endings. One is the original last 30 minutes. The other three are the is the reshoot, but each one is tweaked slightly. Each one is tweaked slightly to give a different outcome. Joyride made its money back and then some, so it wasn't considered a flop. But screwing with the film's storyline probably didn't help it sell it better with the audience. So skip over the Fast and Furious films and watch Joyride in honor of Paul Walker. You'll also get a lesson in movie studio versus artist. Which ending do you prefer? Oh, also watch the DVD version. The Blu-ray has the wrong aspect ratio. It's all framed all incorrectly. everyone, I'd like to thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of Media Riot. We here at Media Riot live for the applause, applause, applause. We live for the applause, applause. Live for the applause, applause. Live for the way that you cheer and scream for us. The applause, applause, applause. Media Riot is an ill noise production, and we'll see you next time. Bye now. <laughs>